All right. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? How's the section doing? You guys doing good? Doing good? Yeah? Section, how's the section doing? Good? How about this section? How about this section? Yes. Jared, I told you not that loud, man. Not that loud. I'll pay Jared after the service. Hey, good to see you guys this morning. Uh, if you're a guest with us, thanks for being here. Um, at Summit Point Church, our mission is helping people find and follow Jesus. It is about him. It is always about him. And uh, if you have not found him, my prayer is that you will find him today. We're going to be going back to our Moses series. We took a break. We walked through the Ten Commandments. We actually did 11 weeks. I did an intro message and then we walked through each commandment one at a time. There's another part two section that I want to do on uh, the life of Moses wandering in the wilderness and then God's people uh, going to the land of Canaan. But thinking about the Ten Commandments, I forgot about the 11th commandment. And so I want to talk about that this morning. Heard a story about a church that was calling a, a brand new pastor and this pastor wanted to see what kind of church members he was going to be ministering to and so he decided on the Saturday before the Sunday where he was going to go to the church and view of a call, meet all the people, be introduced. On that Saturday, the pastor decides to go to the church and dress like a homeless man. He decided not to shave and he hadn't bathed in quite some time, put on some tattered clothes and, that he owned and he, he was really looking the part, smelling the part as well. And he shows up to the church, and one of the church deacons happened to be there. And this deacon introduced himself to this man, this, a.k.a. the pastor, and spoke to him and told him about the love of God. And then the, the deacon invited this man over to have dinner with his family. And the deacon, uh, the man agreed. The deacon drove him over to his home. He kind of sprung it on his wife. He forgot to tell his wife that they were having company over for dinner. You never want to do that. And uh, the wife was a godly woman, and so she was very accommodating, right? And so especially someone like this homeless man, she's very accommodating uh, to this person. And so during the, during the dinner, the, the, the kids gathered at the table, and they blessed the food that was provided for them. And they thanked God for the visitor that they had with them. And at dinner, it was the family's tradition to talk about the Bible, but the wife, being a godly woman, she didn't want the homeless man to feel uncomfortable. So she asked a question that she thought maybe everyone would know. And she asked, how many commandments are in the Bible? And the pastor, disguised as the homeless man, quickly replied, 11. And the kids started snickering and kind of laughing because they knew that the answer that their mom was thinking was 10. At the end of the dinner, the pastor, a.k.a. the homeless man, thanked the family and left. And the next morning, Sunday morning, rolls around, the family gets up and, you know, Sunday morning, the hustle and bustle, everybody's in a great mood Sunday morning, no, no one's arguing, you know, no, no one's upset with each other, you know, on the ride to church, this family loads up, they go to church, they find their seat, they sit down, and the new pastor walks to the pulpit, and immediately the mother recognized 
that that was the man they had over for dinner the night before. The pastor comes to the pulpit, says, open your Bibles and turn to John 13 for a sermon I'm calling the 11th commandment. So if you have a Bible, turn to John 13. John 13, verses 31 to 35, it says, when he had gone out, now that, that's a reference to Judas, when he had gone out, speaking of Judas, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. This is the 11th commandment. Jesus summed it up this way, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now, context is everything. Context matters. So, you know, where are we at in the life of Christ? What exactly is going on? When exactly did Jesus give us this 11th commandment? Well, he spoke these words during the last week of his life. Actually, he spoke these words with the few hours remaining in his life. The last week of his life is known as the Passion Week or, or the, the week of his passion. On, on Sunday, it's known as the triumphal entry, right? Jesus rides a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. And by riding a donkey, he's fulfilling the, a messianic prophecy tucked away in the Old Testament. As he comes into Jerusalem, the people are, are holding palm branches and laying their clothes on the road, and they're hailing him as, as king and as the long-awaited Messiah. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Literally, Hosanna is, Lord, save us. On Monday, he comes back into Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. If you remember, he goes to the temple and he, and he overturns the, the tables, right? He's, a, he's got a whip of uh, cords and he's overturning tables. Why? Because they turned a very sacred, holy place into a place of greed and extortion. So he comes in with righteous indignation and he, he kind of sets things straight. And he begins to teach the people. Tuesday rolls around, there's a series of controversies about his authority, uh, about paying taxes, uh, about uh, what, he, what he taught about marriage uh, in the resurrection, that there's no marriage in the afterlife. Some of you are like, amen. Some of you are like, sorrowful maybe, I don't know. Then Jesus leaves the temple, he goes to the Mount of Olives, and he delivers one of the greatest sermons ever, the Olivet Discourse. He predicts the future destruction of the temple. And we know that the temple was destroyed A.D. 70. One of the things that I, that I say often is Jesus was right about everything. He was right about this as well. He made the prediction, and then decades later, it was destroyed. And, and in all the discourse, he, he talks about the signs which must take place before he returns at the, at the end of the Great Tribulation, Wednesday, Jesus predicts his death to his disciples. Why does he do that? Because he's God. Because he's all-knowing. 
because he's God in human flesh. So he, he knows what's going to happen. He tells his disciples, here's what's going to happen. The religious leaders, they devise a plan to, uh, to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Judas sells his soul to the devil and makes an agreement with the religious leaders to betray Jesus, his rabbi, the one that he's been following for three years for 30 pieces of silver, equivalent to a few hundred bucks. On Thursday, the Passover meal is prepared. Jesus gathers his disciples in the upper room and they celebrate and they eat the Passover meal. And and then he transforms the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper which had to have been a moment, I mean, for the disciples, for them to fully understand, wow, like this whole thing, sacrificial system, the, 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 the bloodshed of a lamb, the day of atonement, it all points to Jesus. Jesus is the perfect, spotless lamb of God. Even his cousin, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus from afar, he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Even John the Baptist knew that Christ, his cousin, was indeed the Messiah. Egypt, the slavery, the 400 years of bondage, Jesus ultimately in the meal was saying, listen, I am your rest, I am your rescue. I will deliver you from spiritual bondage and spiritual slavery. And then Jesus shares some words of comfort that they're going to need in the very near future. John 13 records the 11th commandment. It also records the events that happened on Thursday evening, the night before Jesus' crucifixion. I want you to see two things with me. I spent quite a bit of time this week looking at all the details and kind kind of bringing it all together. And two things stand out to me. Before Jesus gives this new commandment, Remember how I said context is everything? Context matters. Context kind of packages everything for us. There's two things that are happening. Jesus Jesus gives this new commandment, but, but before he tells his disciples, love one another, two things happen. Number one, he washed the dirty, dusty, grimy feet of the apostles, the disciples. In the culture of Jesus' day, you have to understand that the, the lowest ranking household slave had the chore of foot washing. Now, if memory serves me right, Jesus was the highest ranking person in the room. Amen? I mean, he's God in human flesh. He's the agent of creation. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity. And yet, what did he do? He did the unthinkable. He stooped low to the ground, and he washed their feet. Jesus Jesus laid aside status and rank, and he served these men. These men that were sinners, these men that were broken, these men that that, uh, their, their lives weren't perfect. Jesus, who was perfect, served the imperfect. I love what Max Lucado says about Jesus washing the, the disciples' feet. He says this, Jesus touched the stinky, ugly parts of his disciples. Anybody with Max Lucado? I know some of you are like, I hate toast. Well, guess what? You're in good company right here. Dirty, stinky, ugly parts of the disciples. I mean, and who knows, man? It, they, they could have been gnarly toes, man. I mean, nasty, smelly and all, man. 
And Max Lucado goes on, knowing he came from God, knowing he was going to God, knowing he could arch an eyebrow or clear his throat, and every angel in the universe would snap to attention. Knowing that all authority was his, he exchanged his robe for the servant's wrap, lowered himself to, to knee level, and began to rub away the grime, the grit, and the grunge their feet had collected on the journey. You have to understand. You have to understand when you look at the Gospels, before he even does this, before they even you know, make their way into Jerusalem, the disciples are bantering back and forth, who's going to be the greatest? Right? James and John. Some people think that they possibly might be family members, which kind of, kind of gives context to like their mom stepping in and saying, hey, Jesus, can you place them, you know, one on your left, one on the right, right? I mean, mom was buttoned in. You don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. She was buttoned in. Jesus, who is the CEO of the universe, the head coach, the king of the world, the sovereign of the seas, he washed feet. He stooped so low. I mean, leaving heaven and coming to earth was lowering yourself. He, take, he took the form of a bondservant. God, wrapped in human flesh, became a man. But he stoops even lower. He demonstrates humility and selfless service, and he demonstrates true greatness. He was moved to wash their feet, and they were shocked. He has an exchange with Peter. Peter says, oh, you, you shall never wash my feet. I love Peter. Peter's outspoken. Peter says things. I, you know, I'm very similar like Peter. I just say it and then I, and I think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Or maybe I should have said that differently. Peter, he just says it, right? You shall never wash my feet. Jesus said, if I do not wash your feet, see, he's talking about spiritual cleansing. If I do not wash your feet, Peter, then you have no share with me. Peter, you're not one of my disciples. There's no in intimate relationship here you have no part with me and so Peter's like Lord wash my feet and also my head and my hands right he's like Lord give me a bath right now Peter didn't quite understand everything that was going on notice what Jesus says next in John 13 10 to 11 Jesus said to him the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean and you are clean so he's saying you you're a disciple. You have a part with me, right? You've been spiritually cleansed, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. This is a reference to Judas. Jesus knows that Judas has already sold him out. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. You're having dinner. You're washing feet. You're transforming the meal. Judas is right there with the boys. You've invested your life in him. You, you love him. And you know he's going to sell you out. He's going to turn on you. He's going to betray you. Jesus stooped down. He washed his feet. He's saying, not all of you have been cleansed. Not all of you are with me. The second thing that he does before he gives the new commandment, he predicts that one of the disciples will betray him. John 13, 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He knows that Judas Iscariot is the betrayer, the son of destruction. On one occasion, Jesus called Judas out. He said, you are the son of the devil. 
Judas is not a victim. A lot, of ple- a lot of people want to play that card. Oh, well, Judas was a victim. No, he's not a victim. And here's why. He never had an interest in Jesus. His heart was never moved towards the things of God. You know what his heart was moved towards? Pilfering from the money box. His heart was, his, his arm was always moved to take money out of the money box. He had a filthy, dirty, greedy heart. He never had a desire to truly follow Jesus. He opened his heart to Satan. His heart was evil. He went to the dark side. He essentially desired the same thing that that the devil desired, and that was the death of Jesus. Judas was not a victim. He was not a pawn in, in God's redemptive plan. Judas was a fake. He was an imposter. He was a pretender. As believers, the Bible tells us to examine our heart to see if, 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 if we know Christ, if we've been genuinely saved. That's something that we should be, we should be doing in our, in our lives. Do we really know Jesus? See, the difference between Judas's failure and Peter's failure, you know what the difference is? One repented, one didn't. One repented, one didn't. Judas, he didn't repent. He hung himself, committed suicide. Peter repented, and that makes all the difference in the world, is when you give your heart back to God, God will restore, and he will forgive, and he'll give second chances. Peter's heart was right. His heart was tender towards the things of God. Judas was a lying, conniving, greedy rat who sold Jesus down the river for a pocket of cash. Jesus makes the prediction that one of the 12 will betray him. If you weave all the gospel accounts together, you will see that each one of the disciples, it says that each one began to ask the same question. Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Check this out. Two things that Jesus did. Number one, he washed Judas's feet. Number two, he watched Judas leave the room. When Judas got up and he left the room, Jesus saw his back. Judas turned his back on him. Verse 31 says, when he had gone out. This is so tragic, so heartless, so evil. He seized an opportunity. Satan empowered him. And we know how the story ends. Very simple. Judas, he leads a band of of religious and military personnel. And they're carrying swords and torches and clubs to a very familiar garden. To ambush Jesus under the veil of darkness. The Bible says that Jesus, it was his custom to take the disciples to this place. It was his custom. It was a familiar place. They, Judas knew that Jesus would often take the disciples to the, the Garden of, of Gethsemane. It was a place to retreat, a place, place to pray, a, a place to rest. And he found Jesus at the familiar place. And he betrayed him with a kiss. What's so sad about the kiss is, it, you know, the, the kiss identifies um, who, Jesus, who Jesus was. Here's the man who's making the claims. The kiss was a greeting. The kiss was an expression of, of love and reverence. And, and then when Judas kissed him, Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now I want you to see this. 
It is against this backdrop that Jesus gives us this new commandment. The 11th commandment, write this down. Love one another. Love one another. He tells his disciples, I want you to love one another. On another occasion in Matthew 22, a lawyer asked Jesus a question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And and we know the answer, right? Jesus said, love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus added a little tagline, and and he says, on these two commandments, love God, love people, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus is saying, if you had to boil it all down, the Bible is about loving the one true God and loving your neighbor the way you would love yourself. Jesus is saying that our love for God will will manifest itself in the way we love other people. What we experience vertically with God, he implants, he he fills our heart with his love, and then that love, we take that love and it spills out, and we we love other people, we serve other people. The Ten Commandments, you know, a lot of people think, well, the Ten Commandments is it's very traditional, it's archaic, it's God's heavy-handed, you know, he he just he just he just dumping rules on us, right? He's God's just he's just vengeful and wrathful and angry, and, and he just wants to box us in, box us in. No, the Ten Commandments, they don't box you in, they set you free. The Ten Commandments is a blueprint for blessings. It's a blueprint for the life that God ultimately wants you to live. If I was going to point to any passage, this would be like top five. Like if you're going to build your life on a passage, build it on the Ten Commandments because it is a blueprint for blessing. It is, it is about freedom. It is God's goodness. I mean, God could have said, figure it out, figure it out, figure it out on your own. No, he doesn't do that. He, he takes the initiative. He reveals. He, he, he gives us revelation. He says, this is the life that I want you to build your, your life upon. Four commandments are vertical. They deal with our relationship with God. Everything hinges on love. This is why we have no other gods, right, before God. No idols because we love God, right? We don't worship anything other than God because we love God. We don't take his name in vain. Because we love God, right? We keep a weekly Sabbath for worship and rest and family and to refuel, recharge. Why? Because we love God. Worshiping, is, worshiping God is rest that is good for our souls. The last six commandments is horizontal. It's about our relationships with other people. If we love God, we're going to honor our parents. We're not going to murder people. We're going to value, respect life. We're going to love our spouse and be faithful to them. We're going to love our neighbors and not steal from them or lie lie to them. We're not going to covet what belongs to them. It is love that motivates us to obey the commandments that directly impact how we relate to other people. So our love for God will help us to love other people. So what we experience vertically should should bend itself out horizontally towards those around us. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Romans 13.8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Jesus calls us to a life of love. He says love fulfills the law. It's not sacrifices. It's not performance. It's not works. It's not, you know, you got to be better, do better, work it out. No, he says love fulfills the law. Boil the law down. It's about loving people. Here's point number one. Love one another is not a suggestion, but rather a commandment. It is a commandment, not a suggestion. John 13, 38, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now here's the key, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, 
is this a new commandment? I mean, didn't the Old Testament talk about loving God, loving your neighbor? Yeah, absolutely. But the newness, the freshness of this commandment is found in the words, just as I have loved you. You should underline that. That's key right there. Just as I have loved you. Now, when you go to the Greek language, there are four basic kinds of love. Number one, phileo, which is where you get the city of Philadelphia, the brotherly love. Phileo is the love of friendship. Eros is the love of romance, desire, sexual attraction. Storge is the love of affection that arises through natural attachment. So it's a love that's family-oriented, right? A love that a mom has for kids or kids have for their parents. And then the fourth love is agape. This is a God-like self-giving love, even towards enemies, In John 13, the word for love here is agape. This is not an emotional word, right? In our culture, we think love is emotional. It's mushy, gushy, chocolate, flowers. You know, that stuff's very subjective. Love is not emotional. There's a a component that's, it's emotional. But at the, the heart of the matter, it's sacrificial in nature. Love is demonstrated in action, So God is telling us to love one another with an agape love, a a sacrificial kind of love. Jesus is not saying, if you feel like it, if you get around to it. You know, if someone else loves you first, then you know what? Maybe you can love them back. He's not saying that. He's not saying that because that's not how God's treated us. God, God, God doesn't, you know, put that on us. Well, oh, you know, you, you, you know, you got to come to me. You know, you got to make the first move. You got to clean up. You got to, you got to do X, Y, and Z, and then I'll come. Then I'll show up on your on your doorstep. No, God says I'm coming to you. I'm loving you. I'm pursuing you. I'm coming hard after you. But agape love is sacrificial. It's love in action. It's it it it's a godlike love. Sometimes you're whether you're in the mood or not in the mood, because it's not, it's not emotion. The word love is a, is a present tense, is a present active verb, which means it's continuous in nature. So Jesus is saying, I want you to love one another and keep loving one another and keep loving one another. Never stop loving one another. That's hard. Anybody with me? There have been times in my life where it's like, Nope, I'm going to stop loving that person because that person said this or that person did that or, or I, I, I feel hurt by them or wounded by them. But listen, Jesus loved Judas to the very end. He washed his feet hours before he would betray him. That is agape love. He set the example. He, he, he gave us the pattern, not, not just in foot washing, but in how he treated Judas. Maybe God has put a Judas in your life. Maybe that Judas is maybe an ex-spouse. Maybe they, they left you out to dry. Not just a divorce, but maybe bankruptcy. They've hurt you so deeply. Maybe a Judas in your life is a close friend. You thought, you thought they were a close friend. You knew them maybe for years, decades. You, you never thought in a million years they would turn on you. And then they do. They hurt you, they wound you, they betray you, they abandon you. We need to be like Jesus. Jesus, he chose forgiveness. 
And that, that's practically, that's one way where, where we love one another. We, we choose forgiveness. We, we don't choose bitterness. You know, the, the old phrase is, don't be bitter, be better. And I think when you choose forgiveness, you're choosing to be better. You're choosing to be the better person. You're choosing to be more like Jesus. In Matthew 18, 21 and 22, Peter came up and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. I mean, maybe, maybe Peter's like, you know what? I am so sick and tired of forgiving this same person. They just keep doing the same old thing in my life. And, and as many as seven times, he throws that out to Jesus. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Peter, he doubles it, right? He doubles it, adds one for perfection. Peter's like, hey, Jesus, how about I forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus says, that's not good enough. Times it by 70. Why did Jesus say that? You know what he's saying? Don't keep score. Don't keep score. Don't keep track of the wrongs. Because listen, if you have a tally sheet in your brain or you're keeping a tally sheet of all the wrongs that someone's done to you, guess what? You're going to be a miserable person. It's going to make you bitter. It's going to, you're going to cultivate resentment. You're going to be so angry at those people. And you can't do that. It's impossible to keep track of 490 offenses. That's the whole point. This is what Jesus is saying. You, that's practically impossible. So when someone hurts you, there's an injury. There's an offense, right? Someone digs on you. They do something to you. You're like, dang, man, that hurt. Then it moves to a perceived debt. Oh, oh, you hurt me? You wounded me? Oh, now you owe me. You owe me. And so what you do is you hold on to that. You nurse that wound, that you, you cultivate that grudge. You, you, you let it just work in the dark recesses of your heart. You're not willing to let it go. And you're, you, you treat them like, you know what? It's going to take you a long time to pay off this debt. But forgiveness is the cancellation of the debt. You choose to extend forgiveness. You choose to cancel the debt. When you choose to forgive, you're making a decision to see someone through the lens of grace. See, God has forgiven us so much, has he not? Massive sin. What we need to do is we need to look at that sin that God's forgiven on our behalf and then bend that out. Something is so massive, so ginormous, so, so significant, right? I mean, a, a very long list of sins. Someone hurts us. Is, in comparison, it's puny, tiny, insignificant. We need to extend the grace that we've experienced from God and then extend that grace to other people and, and choose to forgive. And why, why should we forgive? Well, because vertically we've been forgiven, forgiven by God. And, and number two, I mentioned earlier, unforgiveness only makes you miserable. It's, it's only, it's only going to hurt you. People that hurt you, guess what? They've moved on. They're hurting other people. God doesn't want you stuck. He doesn't want you wallowing in the misery. He wants to set you free. He wants to do something in your life. He wants to use that circumstance to comfort and be a blessing to other people. So another reason we need to forgive is we're going to need forgiveness in the future. So extend it so he can come back to you. There's a boomerang effect to it. You're going to need to forgive people down the road. And I always say, you never cross the forgiveness finish line. You will never, you will never finish that race. You're never going to 
You're never going to break through that tape and be like, it's over. Well, you will when you take your last breath and you go be with Jesus. But until you take your last breath, guess what? The coach in heaven is saying, run another lap. Run another lap. Keep running the laps. And this is how God is refining and changing us. All right, here's point number two. I have no clue where I'm at because I didn't start my cell phone, my timer. So this might be a very long message. All right, point number two. Here we go. Point number two, loving others is proof that you know God. It's proof, it's evidence that you're a Christ follower, that, that you know Jesus, that you know Christ. John 13, 35, Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love for other people, especially believers, is a mark of genuine saving faith. Do you love other people? Does that come out in your actions? Does that come out in your speech? Are you kind? Are you gracious? Are you forgiving? Do you see the best in people? Or do you see the, the worst in people? Are you, you know, always fault-finding, critical, negative, um, slandering people, backbiting, you know, fighting people? Like, you know, I got off my notes during the first service, and I'm going to get off my notes right here again. Listen, as believers... We gotta love one another. We, we, we gotta demonstrate that, right? And, and, and there, there's so many things that Satan is, he's so clever. He's, he's a serpent. He's gonna come in and his whole aim is to steal, kill, and destroy. Like if, if Satan can come in and, and put a wedge in your relationships with other believers, right? If he, he wants to come in and get a foothold. How does he do that? I think he does that in a lot of ways. Politically. I think he wants to get a full hold in your life. He wants to put a wedge between you and another believer. Here's the deal. Here's what I mentioned in the first service. Not every political issue is a biblical issue. So there are some political opinions that you have, and that's okay if you have them. But you can't make every political issue a biblical issue because you can't do it. You can't put all those issues in Jesus' mouth. I think as Christians, we're so enamored, we're so consumed with this kingdom rather than that kingdom. We're so concerned about the platform that, that we're defending, that we're arguing for. What about heaven's platform? What about that platform? What about that kingdom? I mean, as believers, there's, there's so much tension and, and fighting and bickering about who's right and who's wrong and you know who's got the monopoly on, on political truth. Here's the deal. As believers, we need to move beyond that. Listen, if, if issues are clear, they're clear. Scripture is clear on moral issues. We stand upon the word of God. We stand upon our convictions. But when things are not clear... Extend grace. It's okay to disagree about things. It's okay to see things differently. Guess what? Not everything is vanilla. Not everything is chocolate. I like Baskin Robbins. I like 31 flavors. I like it all. And there's a lot of differing opinions out there on a lot of different issues. And let's extend grace. Let's not fight each other. Let me just say this real quick. The world is watching they're hearing you. They're watching what you type. They're, your oikos is present. So 
if, if, if you just want to, you know, if you just want to fight other people politically, I'm telling you, it's, it, it's not going to serve you well. It doesn't serve the kingdom well. Okay, I'm off that. There we go. All right. That's a little, that's a little, uh, little, yes. Okay. First John 4, 7, 8. And I didn't even yell through all that. I was calm and collected. Behold, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The text doesn't say God is loving, like it's one of his many attributes. It says that God is love. Love is, isn't just something that God does. Love is, is who God is. The Apostle John says God is love. It's, it's the very essence of God's being. He is love. This impacted the Apostle John. The disciple whom Jesus loved, he would often refer to himself that way. I love that. He writes more about love than any other New Testament writer. He used the form of the word love 51 times. He was known as the apostle of love. Church history tells us that he would, in his old age, he would travel from church to church and, and his sermon was always the same. Little children love one another. Little children love one another. This, this, this word love here is agape, right? It's, it's, it's sacrificial love. I love what Oswald Chambers says. God and love are synonymous. Love is not an attribute of God. It is God. Whatever God is, love is. If your conception of love does not agree with justice and judgment, purity and holiness, then your idea of love is wrong. See, I think a lot of people in our culture, they have a really hard time with, with some of this. Like they have a hard time packaging God's love, God's judgment, God's love, God's holiness, God's love, you know, God's righteous indignation. Listen, you have to package it all together. God is love, but there will be judgment someday. God is love, but he's pure and he's holy. He's in a class of his own. No one is like God. No one will ever be like God. He loves good. He hates evil. When God rules, he rules in love. When God judges, he's going to judge in love. Love is, is never absent from God because that's his being. That's, that's his nature. That's who he is. So let's talk about the qualities of God's love. I, I mentioned earlier the newness of the command is found in the phrase, just as I have loved you. So how does Christ love us? Number one, Jesus loves us with a, with a sacrificial love. A sacrificial love. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now I want you to notice this. God loved us before we ever loved him. Just stop and think about the earth suspended in space and this God who spoke everything into existence and sustains everything by the power of his spoken word this God who created the galaxies and the stars and earth and the seas and the mountains this God knows you this God loves you this God chose you before the foundation of the world. This God loved you before you were ever born. Before you could ever love him back, he loved you. He loved you like a parent loves a child. 
When my kids were born, I got four kids, man. When they were born, I, my prayer, when they were born, I told them, I said, there will, you will never do anything to cause me not to love you. I will love you no matter what. I will be with you, for you, not against you. I'll be in your corner. No, there's nothing you can do that would cause me not to love you. And I still believe that way today because these are my kids. These are my kids. And God's given these kids to me and I love them with a radical love. I give my life for them. This is how much God loves us. He was willing to give his life for us. He gave himself, Ephesians 5, 1, and, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He gave himself for us. Love gives. Love gives. Love doesn't take. Love is not selfish. Love is action. Love is it's not emotion. It's, it's, it's a giving love. And, and you see the pattern. Walk in love as Christ loved us. There's the pattern. There's the example. Love gives. That's the nature of love. This is the height of agape love. You have to give. You have to sacrifice. God calls us to love like that. Good thing love is not a feeling. Good thing love is an action, right? I mean, I thank God that his love towards me is not based on how he's feeling one day to the next. Like he just praised God, right? Because some days, I mean, based on our sin, God could smoke us, right? I mean, he could be, you're, you're done, right? You crossed the line. But he loves by sending his son Jesus to take upon our sin, to pay for our sin. 1 John 3, 16 to 18, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John says, this is love. Christ gave his life for you. The cross is the perfect picture of God's love. Number two, Jesus loves us with an unconditional love. You are, I love what Tim Keller said. You are more wicked than you could ever understand. You are more loved than you could ever imagine. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us in action while we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, away from God, far from the promises of God. Jesus didn't die for good, holy, spiritual, righteous, perfect people because there are none. He died for imperfect people like you and I. You know, in our culture, we, you know, we, we say love is blind, love is blind. Not true with God. Love's not blind with God. He loves us eyes wide open. He, he, he sees us. He sees who we are. He sees our imperfections, our faults, our warts, our shortcomings. He sees our brokenness. He sees our past, our present, our future. He sees the landscape of our life, and yet he still chooses to act. He, he acted by sending his son, the champion of grace, the hero of heaven. He came to earth so that we could be forgiven. He acted by giving of himself, Jesus, who gave himself as the perfect gift, this inexpressible gift, Paul calls it. God demonstrates unconditional love for us on the cross. 
He was while Jesus was on the cross. The crowds are chanting, crucify him, crucify him. The Roman soldier stood at the foot of the cross holding a bloody mallet. The the Pharisees were present. They were wearing the robes of self-righteousness. And what did Jesus do? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is unconditional love. Have you experienced this unconditional love? Can you say that you've tasted the sweetness of the gospel? Can you say that you've encountered Christ? Can you say that you've surrendered and you've asked Christ to take your sin and and to to give you forgiveness, to step into your life and to, to transform you? Have you surrendered at all? Are you walking with Jesus? Have you made that commitment? I would say today, Jesus loves you with a, an agape love, a sacrificial love. He gave himself for you. And he loves you. And he knows you. In spite of all your sin, in spite of all your past, all the shame, all the guilt, he loves you. And he loves you with this unconditional love. It's not conditional. If you do this, then I'll do this. No, it's unconditional. He died for you while you were yet a sinner. Why don't you come to him today? Why don't you place your faith in him, your trust in him, and ask him to be the Lord and Savior of your life? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for this morning. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for John 13, this new commandment that you give to us as your people, your family. Lord, help us to be reminded every day that you call us to a life of love, sacrificial agape love towards other people. Help us to to be moved in action. That's what love is. It's not feelings, it's action. Lord, when we see people in need, when we see people hurting, when we see people oppressed, when we see injustice, God, help us to move. Help us to to step in and, and, and demonstrate your love and your grace and your kindness. Lord, today, we thank you for your unconditional love for us. That there's nothing that we could do to make you love us more. You, you love us with perfect love. You love us with this unconditional, unmatched love. And we thank you, God, for that today. Thank you, God, for your love for us. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. Maybe, Lord, there's someone in our life that we need to forgive. Maybe someone that's hurt us really deeply, a Judas. Help us, Lord, to wash their feet this week. God, move us to seek reconciliation, to extend forgiveness, and to let the past go. I know, God, you could give so many people freedom today. Lord, I pray that they would hand off the past and the hurt to you, and they would trust you, God. Help us, Lord, to be marked by love. Help us to be a church that's marked by love, standing on conviction, but also holding high the banner of love for all people. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.